Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Today we have Lori Unum on the phone. Hi, Lori. Hi, Amanda. How are you today? I am fantastic. How are you? I'm good. You know, I um, I, I think about all the travel that I do in my life, and I think of somebody who travels more than me, and that's you, and um, you're with us today at an airport, so thank you for joining us. <laughs> I am. You're welcome. I'm I'm coming to you live from the Delta Sky Club on Concourse B in the Atlanta airport. In the Atlanta airport. Um, Lori, as we get started, would you mind doing an introduction of yourself for the listeners? Sure. My name is Lori Unum. I am the parent of three boys, ages right now, 11, 14, and 17. Two of my kids are diagnosed on the spectrum. My oldest, Ryan, whom I talk about a lot, is um, pretty severely impaired. He was diagnosed shortly before his second birthday, and he's um, classic autism, or what they used to call classic autism, you know, nonverbal, sometimes aggressive, sometimes self-injurious. And then I have a typical 14-year-old who's in ninth grade, and an 11th grade, um, 11-year-old fifth grader who is the polar opposite end of the spectrum from my oldest. Um, he's very high-functioning and um, super smart, super verbal, um, and just some social skills um, issues. So we live the entire spectrum in our house, and I also... Um, work in autism professionally. I'm a full-time employee of Autism Speaks, where I head the state government affairs department, and that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. 10 years, a decade. Wow, Lori. (laughs) I know. Um, It's flown by. I mean, that's how we met. Um, I was through autism insurance and legislation. Um, First, I met Judith in Massachusetts and then connected with you out here in Hawaii. So how many states currently have, I mean, I know the answer to this, but um, have autism insurance, what you would consider meaningful coverage? Mm-hmm. I know you know the answer because you, you keep up in all the states, and, and we're so grateful for the work that you've done in Hawaii and elsewhere. We have worked in all 50 states during the last decade, and 48 of those have now um, taken some kind of state action to require health insurance coverage for autism and including ABA. We we actually have a map on the wall of the United States and we turn a state green when they require meaningful coverage. And to us, meaningful coverage means it must include ABA and it must be at some amount that's not just de minimis. So yeah, we're at 48 states, Amanda. We're getting there, 48 states. Um, I recently was working on an article publication, and they were talking about the perspective of the United States as being progressive and a lot of progress, and the idea in the first draft of the article said, you know, in the United States, everyone has insurance and autism access to services is happening easy peasy. And I uh, clarified that there's nothing easy peasy about it, um, although we're grateful to have the services. Um, what are you seeing as the the kind of what's holding us back from having all 50 states right now? Well, so there are two states that, um, well, let me, let, me, let me be a little more specific. There's one state that hasn't addressed it at all, and that's Wyoming. 
and I am in the midst of some very good conversations with policymakers in Wyoming. So I really anticipate that Wyoming will come on board soon and will require coverage for uh, individuals with autism. Very optimistic about that. The other state that's not on our green state map is Tennessee. And they're in a little bit of a different boat because Tennessee actually passed something called the Autism Equity Act way back in 2006, before most states had even looked at the autism issue. And the Autism Equity Act was a kind of insurance mandate. It just required coverage for speech and I think OT and PT, but it stopped short of requiring coverage for ABA, which is, of course, the treatment that many families were being prescribed and that was out of reach for families who didn't happen to be independently wealthy. So we've never counted Tennessee as a state that has addressed this issue, but I think I, we're working with Tennessee, Tennessee, working with the Department of Insurance, and, um, you know, they've come around a little bit to the, trying to, to ensure that all of their insurance carriers actually are covering ABA now. So, so we're getting there in those remaining two states. There are a number of deficiencies in the laws in most of the, of the 48 that are green on our map. Some of them have caps and restrictions on the coverage. Um, some of them have gaps in the coverage. I call this the gaps and caps area. Uh, because some of them have gaps where certain types of health insurance policies have to cover autism and ABA, but other types of insurance policies don't. So it's not the case that everybody in the state has meaningful coverage for autism. I know that's a challenge for families when they look at things like self-funded plans or if they have, they work with uh, small employers, things like that, but You've shared a lot of how conversations can make a big difference, and sometimes it's families contacting their employer or contacting that legislator or senator in their area. Can you just speak a little bit to how, how do people go about formulating those relationships or any strategies or ideas for people who don't quite yet know how to access that coverage in states that do have it? Sure. So, I, I mean, you hit the nail on the head, Amanda. I think it really is all about those relationships because – in every one of those states, it's not that some legislator just kind of discovered the issue and said, oh, this is economically beneficial for the state to ensure that these kids get coverage. I mean, it's that some mom or dad reached out to a legislator and told their story. That's what has motivated legislators to act. In the self-funded sphere, that's what's motivated HR directors or directors to act. And, and you brought that up. So about a quarter of the American population is insured through their employer, but that insurance is not subject to state regulation. So in other words, when the state of Hawaii passes a law, an insurance mandate, that insurance mandate doesn't apply to these companies that are self-funded. These are called self-funded companies, and they're regulated or governed by a federal law called ERISA, not by state insurance laws. And as I said, like a quarter of the population has coverage 
through these self-funded companies. And so even as we've been incredibly successful working with families all over the country to pass these autism insurance mandates, those mandates don't reach everybody in the state. So basically, if you work for a large corporation, if you work for CVS or Boeing or Walmart or AT&T or Bank of America, your company is self-funded. Almost all large corporations are self-funded. And that means rather than paying premiums to an insurance company and transferring the risk to an insurance company, these companies, AT&T, Walmart, Bank of America, they just pool their own money together and they create this pool of funds within the company and they say, well, if somebody, if a Bank of America employee gets sick or has cancer or has autism, we'll pay the claims out of our own pot of money. Technically, that's not even insurance. It's just a health benefit plan. And that's why it's not subject to state insurance regulation. Uh, the, re the state can only regulate what is actually insurance, meaning the risk has been transferred to a third party. In a case like Bank of America or Walmart or Boeing, the company is assuming the risk in-house for the claims that their employees might have. It's called just a health benefit plan. So if you work for one of those companies, and your state passes an autism insurance mandate, that mandate doesn't do anything for you. So what we do at Autism Speaks, we help families who work for self-funded corporations go to their HR department and say, hey, we know that you don't have to comply with our state's autism insurance mandate, but we're asking you, will you voluntarily add ABA coverage to our health benefit plan. And we routinely travel to corporate headquarters to go with employees to visit with their HR directors or their benefits directors to help make the case. And you might wonder, like, why would a company decide to do that? That's just more cost. Well, these large corporations, they have to remain competitive in their compensation and in their benefits package. You know, benefits is part of overall compensation. And, you know, if you've got somebody, a, a, a valuable employee who has a kid with autism and they need that ABA coverage, well, heck, they're going to leave the company and just go to another company, right, that does have the coverage. They don't want to lose their good talent. So they want their benefits plans to be competitive. And we've had tremendous success going to these companies, explaining what autism is, explaining what ABA is explaining the cost, explaining the cost-benefit analysis, and getting these companies to decide voluntarily to adopt ABA coverage, even though a state law doesn't require them to do so. But back to your original question, it's all about the relationships. And so, you know, Autism Speaks really is not in the business of just approaching a large corporation and saying, knock, knock, can we talk to you about autism benefits? Instead, we partner with families, and the families will contact us and say, hey, my insurance doesn't cover, or my health benefit plan doesn't cover ABA, would you help me approach HR? So that's how we've um, approached this whole self-funded sphere, and, it, and it's been very successful. 
Well, I think you've been very successful in teaching a lot of us and helping a lot of the providers and the parents and the community and the self-advocates, so we are grateful for that. Um, And education is such a huge piece of it. When we were trying here to pass autism insurance, we found the more people we spoke to about it, the more people we had who were equally as appalled or equally as invested, they just weren't aware. So um, speaking of education, you mentioned that your children are now 11, 14, and 17. So your oldest, Ryan, is almost 18 years old. Um, What is on the horizon for him or or kind of what are – what? What exists out there for our adults? Um, What's on the next frontier there? Well, Amanda, that's what keeps me awake at night these days. Uh, As we're recording this interview, Ryan is weeks away from his 18th birthday. And, um, you know, luckily he is able to continue to receive ABA um, and continue in our public school system for a few more years. But it's really weighing on me what kind of vocational opportunities are out there for him, what residential options are there for him. He's still, uh, he, he's made enormous progress, but he's still a severely impaired individual with autism, still nonverbal, um, still, you know, some aggressive behaviors to deal with. So, um, but, but I really, you know, okay, so he is nonverbal. Not every job requires verbal skills. Some bosses might be really happy to have someone who doesn't talk on the job. And we've we've sampled some some job skills with Brian. He's fantastic at data place uh data entry. Um he can wash dishes, he can wash clothes, he can fold towels, he can lift boxes, he can do so many things that um make him employable. And so I spend a lot of my time now thinking about how do we create those opportunities for the the generation of, of children or young adults with autism who are ready for the workforce. And, and I mean create the opportunities across the spectrum. There's a lot of activity right now on creating opportunities in the high-tech field. And, you know, I'm grateful for that because my youngest might ultimately take advantage of that at some point. Um, but I, I really want to see the opportunities, meaningful work opportunities for people um, who don't have the verbal, verbal skills or who, who do need greater support. Because I got to tell you, like, I, even though he doesn't speak to me, I know Ryan well enough to know when he's done with school, he does not want to sit at home on my couch. He has something to contribute to society he is able-bodied he's capable so part of what I've been working on lately is looking at the implementation of a federal law that passed in 2014 called the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act and that is a very comprehensive federal law that addresses many areas but one of the things that it does is it says to our state vocational rehabilitation agencies, hey, you need to invest in pre-employment training services for young people with significant disabilities. The way the voc rehab system currently operates or, or prior to this law operated was, you know, kids would come in at age 18 and they would go through a, maybe a 
several week, maybe a couple months vocational training program. And that might work fine for a lot of people with, with certain disabilities or certain deficits. For some individuals with autism, they are employable and they are trainable, but they need more than 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. They might need a couple of years to acquire the appropriate employment skill. But so what? So they need a couple of years. Let's give them a couple of years, get them meaningfully employed, and then that lasts the rest of their lives. So I'm working with states to ensure that individuals with autism are well represented in the way that voc rehab agencies are reallocating their funding to provide these pre-employment transition services to people with autism. And that can start, you know, the early teenage years, 14, 15, we can start training uh, young people with autism and spend a few years so that when they are 18, 19, 21, 22, whatever age they want to try to enter the workforce, they'll be better prepared. And you know what's interesting to me, Amanda? You're a BCBA. You're a doctoral-level BCBA. As I look at these pre-employment training services that Congress asks our state vocational rehabilitation agencies to provide, what Congress specified they wanted taught in terms of pre-employment transition services were things like independent living skills, work skills, the social skills necessary to function in a work environment. And I think that's exactly what ABA is already providing to people of the appropriate age, right? I mean, if you have a teenager in an ABA program, you're not working on sorting primary colors. You're working on essentially what are pre-employment transition skills. So I really am working hard to kind of marry the expertise and the and the history of the ABA field in working with individuals with autism with the vocational rehabilitation um, expertise in placing people into employment. And that's what I think this um, WIOA, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act funding, is permitting us to do is looking at combining those uh, those expertises and those services. Are there any states that you feel are currently leading the way with that or any programs that you might have come across? You know, there are um, shining examples here and there. Missouri's got a, a good program where they've um, in, invested some dollars in what they call pre-ETS, pre-employment tra uh, transition services trainers, um, taking former special ed teachers to do that. Uh, Massachusetts um, is frequently ahead on on educational and, and vocational and residential services for people with autism. But honestly, I'm still kind of in the surveying phase um, to figure out what's out there. And I think a lot of states are still trying to figure out how to invest those dollars that Congress has directed be spent on pre-employment transition services. Yeah, I mean, I haven't found much and have been looking as well. Um, and I think the, the challenge is, as a behavior analyst, I want to I want to help in every single area, and it's a lot for one person, that, and I know the same is true for you as a parent, as a 
lawyer as well. Um, Lori, what are you seeing as kind of the next frontier in addition to we have adult services? We have some states that have been now accessing autism insurance for 15 years or more. Um, mm-hmm. In those states, um, are what are you seeing as sort of uh, cumulative outcomes? Are, are any legislators or anybody saying to you, this is what we're experiencing a decade later, um, and is it positive? You know, I I um, I can't say that I've had anything but really positive experience with the insurance coverage for ABA that so many states have put into place. I mean, I think the legislators actually feel awesome about what they did in all of the states where they had the opportunity to help shape that policy and provide this life-changing treatment to individuals with autism. As I said earlier, we've still got a lot of um, restrictions that we need to get rid of that are still um, preventing everyone who needs the care from being able to get it. So that's definitely something that I see myself and my colleagues at Autism Speaks continuing to work on um, until we get rid of those restrictions. Right now, as I said, I'm in the Delta Sky Club. I'm halfway to from my home uh, state of South Carolina to Florida, I'm headed to Tallahassee, the capital, because Florida was one of the early states to embrace autism insurance reform back in 2008. But a lot of those early states, they kind of tiptoed in, and so they made the coverage mandatory for certain types of policies, like large group policies, but people who work for a small employer or people who just buy their insurance individually for themselves or their family, they still don't have coverage. So that's what I'm headed to Florida for. That's one of the things is to try to fix that humongous gap in the Florida autism insurance law so that everybody still has that coverage. Wow. Well, I mean, to speak for me and everyone that I know who's ever met you or benefited from your work, we're grateful for you and for you to go and for you to travel um, often away from your family. Um, And I don't want to take too much of your time. I know it's still the Oscars, I think, are happening. Um, (laughs) So the girl with no television. But, Lori, before we get off today, is there anything else that you'd like to let the listeners know or any information or websites that you'd like us to to orient to? Well, I'd like for the listeners to know what an awesome advocate you've been in Hawaii. (laughs) It was so much fun working with you in Hawaii, Amanda, and you are a fierce advocate, um, not only on autism insurance reform, but for all of the needs that your families have. experience and uh, you know I think you know as behavior behavior babe people know you as a behavior analyst and they know your skills as a behavior analyst I don't know if people know um, your policy expertise and what an amazing and fierce advocate you are so I'm going to take this opportunity to thank you for that and to um, sing your praises a little bit on this podcast so thank you And, you know, it's just been my privilege to work with a lot of amazing volunteers. Often it's families, um, but, you know, it's it's been refreshing, to, especially in today's political world where special interests drive everything and partisan bickering drives everything. This has been just this refreshing kind of exercise in pure democracy where families and providers, other stakeholders, approach 
their legislators and say, here's a problem that you probably don't know about unless you have a child with autism. Here's a solution that we've come up with. Let us educate you about what the issues are. And it's worked. You know, and I think the legislators have found it refreshing to deal with the actual families instead of lobbyists. Nothing wrong with lobbyists. I, you know, I hire them through Autism Speaks uh, in some states, but um, it's just been really refreshing for everyone to see this very pure movement of trying to remedy a wrong that has been preventing families from accessing health care for their children with autism. Um, and it's just been just a blessing, really, to be a part of the whole movement. Oh, thanks, Lori. Um, thank you, really, for, again, inspiration. And um, my whole involvement in public policy has been shaped by you, by Dr. Gina Green, Jim Carr, Dan Unum, um, and others, Mike Wasmer, Judith Ersetti, Kate, I don't know where to stop, Charles, with the thank yous, but really thank you to you and to your team and to your family and for joining me today on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, you can go to www.behaviorbabe.com. 